Hey, good morning. I got to warn you, it's been a few weeks since I've been able to be up here. So I got a little bit pent up. Second service, all that we were waiting for is lunch, right? So be prepared for supper. Just saying. <laughs> Just kidding, sort of, not really. All right, let me ask you a question that I... I'm kind of guilty of asking various forms of this same question. I understand. I, I'm not the only one, though. Preachers ask these kinds of questions all the time. I even heard a guy on the radio on the way in this morning asking the same exact question to his congregation. So I'm in good company. But let me just ask you, what is the missing piece in your life right now? So if you're, if you're like me and you're part of the human race, you have a thing. There is something that eludes you. There is something that hasn't quite yet arrived. And even when you get the thing that you were previously kind of obsessed with and that shows up and plays out in your life, there's another thing. It's kind of like we continue to move on this progression of what else can, can satisfy my needs in my life. So maybe uh, it's good for us to ask this question on a regular basis because I think it's a good heart diagnostic type of question. I need to ask this of myself quite a bit because a lot of times the Lord gives me sometimes the things I was begging him for, the thing I wanted, and I'm like, ah, oh, I just didn't cut it. I need something else. What's the next thing? That's why I relate so much to what Jonathan Edwards says about our hearts are idle factories. I feel like my conveyor belt is constantly churning. And so it's a good regular maintenance kind of question. We have to ask ourselves, is it that relationship that I'm waiting on or is that raise or that new job or maybe it's that positive health diagnosis that's going to come through and I'm going to be safe and secure and all that kind of stuff. It's those kinds of things. And then when that arrives, then we have this dilemma. It's like, am I going to be satisfied with that? Is that really all I needed or is there more? Maybe you're on the kind of the more mature uh, Christian side of this. And you're willing to answer that question going, okay, I know what I need. And it's, it's probably the Sunday school answer. You know, it's the one that you know the Sunday school teacher's looking for. And you know you're going to say it and it's going to be spiritual and all this kind of stuff. But it could be something like this where you say, well, I know what I need is a more mature, consistent faith. I need to take Jesus at his word so that when he says, like he did in Matthew 6 and so many other places, that he's going to take care of my needs, I go, well, he's got it. I don't have to worry about this anymore. I don't have to fret or freak out or anything because he said he was going to clothe me like the lilies of the field. He's going to feed me like the birds of the air. He said he's got this, so I'm chill now. Is it that easy? Don't be too embarrassed if that wasn't your first answer. If you're saying, oh, man, you kind of, you tricked me in. I was thinking, okay, I need that new vehicle and I need that other thing and I need, I need my spouse to think differently of me, all these kinds of things. This, the reason why we think that is because we're people. We live in a physical kingdom. We were born with flesh. We walk on the earth and our entire experience, apart from some of the glimpses or glimmers of the eternal kingdom that the Lord gives us, our entire experience is walking this dust and kind of kicking up this sod and saying, okay, this is the life I know. And so it's, it's normal for us. I didn't say it's acceptable, but it's normal for us to think that the answer to our physical problems in our physical life is a physical supply. Think about, though, how many cares in your life would be satisfied if you just didn't worry about them. Now, if you think you've come to church and I'm just going to give you, hey, people, stop worrying about your stuff. It's no big deal. 
That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the hard part of the challenges of our life is how much they grind us, how much they grate in our spirit and in our head and they dominate our mental space. Imagine if that part was just gone, even if the problem wasn't solved, even if it didn't fix all of our, we're just not that stressed about it. What would life be like if the worries about our health or our marriage or our money or our children or the education that we're receiving or the education that we want our kids to receive or the acceptance that we want from that person or that group of people or that covering of our shame if they ever found out who I really am and we kind of walk around with this like it's going to sneak around the corner and jump on us. What if, what if our worry for all of those things went away? I know what you're thinking. It's easier said than done, right? We have, we have mastered the art of concern and placed in its place a thing called worry with a capital W. And that is the sin that the scriptures uh, condemn in our hearts and in our lives. But concern is the right thing. God doesn't say, don't ever be concerned about your marriage. Don't ever go and balance your checkbook. We're not worrying about those things. Just let it run off the rails. Who cares? God's got this. He said he'd take care of you. Or, or I don't need to be concerned about passing the test and getting my education or any of those sorts of things. It's the problem is, is that we put concern on the wrong day. That's what worry is. Concern is what happens if I don't pass the test? And what if I have to start the semester over with this class? Or what if uh, she doesn't uh, take me? Or what if he is doing what I think he's doing? Or what if the money doesn't come in? We start worrying about all the what ifs down the road are concerned that should be just for today, what do I do about it now, gets displaced, it gets put on another day, and that's worry. All of that is to say that our scripture text this morning, as we come back to John 4, we're going to wrap up John chapter 4, introduces us to a man with great worry. But the, the difference with this guy is he's not freaking out for needless things. He's not freaking out over frivolous things. I've got any more Fs I can throw in there? He's, he's concerned and worried for the things that you and I would be worried about too. So I find this guy to be quite relatable. I think his issue is something that we'd be like, yeah, you know what? His temperature rising is probably warranted in this case, but not necessarily to Jesus. So let's look at the difference here because what Jesus is going to do is pinpoint the source of his worry. And instead of just dealing with him, he does it in a way that gets recorded for all, for all of uh, history to see. And you and I are going to get a lesson on how we become the people that aren't worried about all the things that we can't control, the things that are next week, next month, next year, or maybe never. Instead, expressing the right kind of concern and trust in all of this. So please hear this before we get into the passage itself, that only a faith bigger than you can save you from your worry and your fear. So often the antidote to our freaking out, as you'll hear from many pulpits and, and books and things like that, is to try harder, to squint more, to sweat more, to believe for better things, as though we can muster up enough of our own faith to get rid of our panic. But I think Jesus is going to show that he is the one that takes this weak, immature faith and makes it the thing that is acceptable to him, makes it the thing that allows us to survive and rescues us from our panic and worry. We put so much expectation on ourselves that we can muscle through and make this better. But I don't think that's what Jesus intended at all. 
So let's set the stage just a little bit as we come back to the text. We've been away from it for a few Sundays, but you'll remember that Jesus did some incredible work in Samaria. He met the woman at the well. And uh, he saw that even though her, all of her external ailments, her social, um, uh, 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 well, distance came to my mind, because that's all we talk about now, social distancing. So, so, but her, her actual distance from society, because of all of her failures in relationships and the five husbands that she had and the one that she's living with now and all those kinds of things, and, and she was an outcast there, and then she was, she was weathered and hard from all of the, the beatdown that life had given her. And Jesus, uh, dealing with her, the real her, reaches into her soul and forgives her greatest issue, which was her sin. And, and we know that as that story progresses, she takes that forgiveness and literally runs with it. She goes and she does like we just sang and she shouts for joy and she tells these people kind of raw and, and laying it out bare. Come see the man who told me everything I did. And they're going, well, she's handling this different. She used to wear it like a chip on her shoulder. Stop judging me. Don't look down on me. I don't need you people and everything. And now she's saying, all right, I, I understand. I know who I am. But he told me he knows who I am and he forgave me anyway. You got to come meet this guy. And then the text says that they started going, hmm, sounds interesting. So they follow her out. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were saying that as Jesus was saying, I don't have need of food right now because my food is kind of walking down the path. See all those people coming from the village to hear what I have to say? That's what's sustaining me right now. Because she was leading an entourage back of people who were curious, who were starting to believe. But then they tell her later. After their encounter with Jesus, they say, um, we know that we had a form of belief as you were telling us, but now that we've met him ourselves, we get it. We're in. We are believers. This is all that's going on in Samaria. Jesus' work is, is, is presently done, but more is going to build and go on in Samaria as the church is being built in that neck of the woods. So now we come to our portion of scripture and we see that jesus is leaving samaria because the work has been done and in verse 43 this is before we get to the concentrated part of our text verse 43 says after the two days he after the two days he departed for galilee for jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown in other words he's saying they don't really get what i'm about they don't see me for who i really am being the son of god they saw me do something pretty cool we're going to go back and press the issue because a prophet is without honor they raised me in school they gave me my first job they uh, they, they saw me live life they're not really buying all of this so we're going to go back to them and help them to see what's really going on here so when he came to Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. He's returning to the scene of his first miracle. And, and, and you'll recall, this is from a couple of months back, that Jesus had attended a wedding, and the, the shame of all shames, the faux pas of all faux pas, was to run out of supply, and the wine was gone. So Jesus said, okay, get some pots of, get some pots over here, fill them with water. And he's like, turns it into wine. And, and the scripture says that it was a private act, a private miracle, but clearly the message got out. By the time he's returning, they're all like, there's the wine, there's the water changer. He's the one that made wine. Let's, let's see what he's going to do next. And they were welcoming him, ushering him back. 
because he had done this great thing. Jesus knew that he was walking back to a people who had an appetite for big miracles now. They're sold. They're hooked. But this is what Jesus, what John had already told us about Jesus' attitude towards this. We go back to chapter 2. Verse 23 says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. I would earmark that and say, that's the start of a weak faith. Oh, there's got to be something going on. I mean, he just did what we can't do. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows they're in it for the miracles right now. He's not giving up on them totally. He's going back to them, right? But he knows what he's going back to is this very weak faith, something very superficial, something that's going to need to be increased and grow for the mission to continue for centuries to come. So as we come to our text in verse 46, your Bible, the first word might be, therefore, mine is saying the word so. But this word is connecting not just the last paragraph to this one. It's connecting the mindset. Jesus is walking back into a miracle-hungry environment, and what's about to happen is taking place in that environment is really what, they're, what the writer is wanting to emphasize for us here. So let's go back to, let's go into verse 46. He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. An official, some of your Bibles might say it was a nobleman. This was a guy of authority, of resource. He had servants. He had you know, power and that kind of thing. But his son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked, or the stronger language in the original is that he's begging him, wasn't just being kind and polite about it. He begged him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Like I said, this guy's worried about things that you and I would be worried about. We're not going to look down our noses and say, what's this guy's problem? Doesn't he know he's talking to Jesus? His child is dying. And, and we understand even from the study of the text, this is a kid, not that it matters how old your child is when they're dying, but, but we're talking like seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that. So even more vulnerable and helpless and life before him and everything. So this dad, this man of resources, who's about 20 miles out of town, who says, I'm hopping on a horse and I'm getting to where this guy is because I've heard the rumors of what he can do. And all of my money, all of my barking orders, all of my authority isn't doing anything to save this kid. I'm at wit's end. It's all I've got to offer is a beg. So he hops on the clop, 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 gets to Jesus and he says, I'm begging you, come, be with my son and heal him. He's about to die. We can, we can understand this. A, a father or a mother's urgency to protect the life of their child knows no limits, doesn't have any control of its emotions, doesn't know how to ask things properly in the moment of, of panic or freaking out or any of those kinds of things. I haven't had a lot of experience with this. It's amazing, isn't it? With as many kids as we've had in the small household, we haven't had a lot of ER visits with broken bones and all those kinds of things. Some of you guys, you got the, the sports kids and you're like every other week, say, hey, that's another trip to the ER. <laughs> got to set that one, get it in and everything. And, and, and then even some more serious things and some real turmoil to deal with and stuff. And, and it's heartbreaking. You feel helpless as a parent. I, I remember my oldest, Taylor, was 
probably maybe six or seven at times. She was just really little and just didn't really understand what was going on. And she had something that ended up being really no big deal because they were able to pinpoint it and deal with it. It was a bacteria kind of infection that had rested, found its way into her hip. And we had just noticed that she was having a hard time walking. She was in a ton of pain and everything. So we were just unsure as we all are when it comes to these things. And so you bring your kid in, you're like, fix her, you know, and you're kind of going, hurry up, you know. And, uh, you know, so they were able to determine what it was, but it was after, you know, a lot of poking and prodding and they're trying to find the vein. You know how those things go. And again, as the parent, you're kind of like, land the plane already, even though this is common, it just happens, you know. And uh, if any of you know Taylor, you know, she was kind of always like a, a few years ahead of her age. And uh, I just remember the part that broke my heart the most was the fact that while she was getting picked over and over and over again until they found the landing spot, she was just scared and she didn't know why they kept jabbing her and stuff. And she knew if I calm myself, kind of center myself and be the mature little lady, maybe I can get them to do what I want them to do kind of thing. And she just, she kind of stiffens up and she just looks at me. She goes, daddy, can you just please make them stop? She had been crying and she, and she just stops. Could you please just make them stop? And I'm like, I can't. They have to do this and you're so helpless and you're kind of looking at them like, yeah, could you guys you know, just make it happen? You know, cause she's calling out for me. What am I supposed to do? This man is not in an unrelatable position. We would all give him a pass, but really what he's demonstrating here is a very weak faith. And I'm just warning you, I'm about to be nitpicky on a guy that we all have now a tremendous heart for. But it's to prove a point that this is the world we operate in. We think that everything has a limitation. We think that everything is within our control. And what this man was demonstrating to Jesus was he thought that Jesus needed to be present to heal his kid. I mean, who thinks like that? You need to come down and see him. Doesn't he know the rest of the New Testament that hadn't been written yet that Jesus can just lob it like from a distance and be like healed. You're good. Or... He had such weak, pathetic faith that he didn't even think that even if his child dies, Jesus could raise him from the dead. And we're sitting there thinking, you know, Brent, stop picking on the guy who wants to who wants to think that that uh, he can do that from a distance or who wants to see their child go through that just to have a miracle performed. Who of us would offer that? None of us. But the reality is, is his faith was a human faith. He he just had a, a Hail Mary to throw out there. That's what we have to offer. He didn't even think about the fact because he doesn't understand or see the fact that Jesus is going to heal this, this kid from really far away. Or that later on, as he comes to Lazarus, he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and he's going to walk out of a tomb. He doesn't know these things. Nevertheless, his faith is weak. It's this kind of faith that separates humanity from God. We only see on this side of the curtain, and he sees all that's possible. And just because this kind of weak faith is understandable to us doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. Really, it's God's mercy that allows us to come to him with this weak faith. But it's his grace that says, I'm not going to let it stay there. If this dad just had his request and Jesus says, okay, I'll go. And then boom, okay, we done here. Then a month later, something else would have come up and he would have gone clop, 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 running up to Jesus. Hey, you fixed one for me before. Can you do this? Jesus says, this guy needs to grow. And all of those that are around watching this, he needs to grow. He can't keep falling into this weak faith trap. It's not good for him. It's not good for the glory of God. Something bigger needs to be done here. So we go back to the 
the opener. We go back to our question. What are you missing? What are you looking for? And if, if we were giving sort of the Sunday school answer, we'd say, well, I need a stronger faith. Well, what, how would a stronger faith have helped this guy? Well, we can see an example of it, fortunately, not in the book of John, but in the book of Luke. It's not covered for us in John. But in Luke, we have a very similar situation, and often these stories are kind of confused for one another because there's some similarities here. But in Luke 7, we're going to pick up in verse 2 if you're flipping pages, but the, but the Bible says a centurion had a servant. So this is a military leader. He's got a servant with him. A cent, uh, he had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. This isn't just a throwaway guy to this guy. This guy matters. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to el- he, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, this man, he's, he's worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. In other words, Jesus, this wouldn't be a waste of your time. This dude is great and he's important to us. So if you'd please come through and help him out, he just really deserves it. So Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends saying to him, Lord, don't even trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. The whole reason why he sent the elders of the Jews, because he didn't feel like he belonged in Jesus presence or he was worthy to be in his presence. So he said, maybe you guys will have a better respect and an appreciation with him. Why don't you go and ask him for me? There's a lot of humility in that. He's not being lazy. He doesn't, he's not being careless. I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, when he saw this incredibly mature faith, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So we don't have time to break all this down, but let's suffice it to say, that guy in Luke 7 is kind of like the Sunday school answer of what it means to have faith. To the extent that he says to Jesus, you can do anything. So much so that I don't even really need to be present with you and partially because I really don't even deserve to be in your presence. So in humility, I'm just begging you for a favor. I'm asking you to come through. And I know you don't even have to come because you can, you can send healing like it's one of your servants. You can send an angel down because I understand what authority looks like. I tell people to do these things all the time and they do that. So because you are the great God and you have that authority, would you please do that for me? And we're going, oh, that's what I want to say every time I'm challenged. That's the response I meant to say. But instead, it's like, you got to come. He's going to die. You got to be there. It's what we do. How does this man in John 4 grow to be like the man in Luke 7? Because another time is coming, right? How do we grow? How do we get ready to express a stronger faith? Like this, one that alleviates so much of the pressure of our lives because we're not overly worried about the outcomes. First thing we need to understand from the interaction we're going to see is that mature faith grows from the seed of God's word. Three words in verse 48. So Jesus said. 
We could stop there, but we need to hear what he said. But the point here is that Jesus is speaking and he's speaking truth. He is the Logos. He is the word of God from beginning to end, not just the red letters in the New Testament. He is the very mouthpiece of God. So when Jesus is speaking, he is being consistent with all of God's works. All the things that God has done in uh, all of history has been um, uh, accompanied by his word. We can see it from creation to the, the, the uh, exodus of his people from slavery in Egypt to the judgment of those same people when they were being rebellious and wandering, even to the transfiguration and the glorification of Jesus on the mountainside and to the establishment of the church at Pentecost as the spirit blows through God's newly added people like a mighty rushing wind. God's word is present with his work always. And so Jesus speaks to them. He says to them in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. The official, the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the words of Christ. You and I will not grow in our faith. We will continue to demonstrate a faith of panic and one of desperation until we allow the words of Christ into our life. I know I'm like literally preaching to the choir when I'm talking about this. You're here, you're listening, you're tuning in on a screen, you're paying attention to the word of God and you want it to feed your soul. But we all know there are varying degrees of our availability to the voice of the Lord. Sometimes we're here and we just feel like, okay, I did my part, kind of religious duty. I'm expecting God to make my week go better because I gave him a little bit of time. Sometimes we're here and we're like, I really like what I said, but it's a little too tough of a call. So I have no intention of following it through. And then sometimes we're like, oh man, I have so much work to do. Lord, help me sort it out. I got to do the little things and just grow in you. And I want to be obedient. We're, We're at various places of our response and being in the audience of God's voice. How willing are you to hear these words and for them to penetrate your heart and to challenge your existence, to help you to see things that you often don't see? God's word always accompanies his work. He will not do it without speaking to us. And of course, every, we always got to qualify. I'm not talking about him speaking out here. I'm saying that he has given us so much that we're not even familiar with or we don't even wrestle with. And we expect him to keep adding more on top of it. And he's kind of going, let's go back in here. There's a lot here. Also, God's word is the consistent window that we have to his kingdom. You and I walk through this earth day in and day out, being reminded of the physical limitations of everything that we're in. As we said at the outset, we're born in this world. Everyone's saying this is all there is. You just got today. Make the most of it. There's no hope for anything beyond. And then God's word comes flooding into our ears and we go, there's eternity. There's a whole kingdom we can't see. We're, We're playing out a play before all of eternity and we're using the time wisely to be faithful in it. And then one day we'll be rewarded. One day we'll be entering into our bliss and our rest. And we need to be reminded of that because everything out there is not trying to remind us of that, is it? God's word is the consistent window that we have to an eternal kingdom. 
Weak faith can only see the circumstances in front of us, but strong faith sees an eternal kingdom that can't be threatened by anyone. And we need that reminder. That's in fact why John gave us this gospel. He told us, we studied this right at the outset, that the whole point of him taking the time, some like 70 years after, I think, or something like that, after the other three gospels were written, John says, I'm going to add to this. Why? Because, he says in verse 31 of chapter 20, these things I wrote down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The words of God were given to us so that it would infuse in us a belief that would lead to our life. John says the whole point of writing this down. But our faith will not grow until we look for his plan in the eternal kingdom. And we've said a lot about faith. Uh, what is it really? And we get a lot of watered down, just sort of hoping, believing, keeping our fingers crossed. A lot of people are told you got to have faith, keep the faith, that kind of thing. What does it really look like? Unfortunately, the Bible defines it for us in Hebrews 11. In verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Your Bible might say it's the substance of things hoped for. And it's the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. You are anchoring in a promise that you can't see because of the one who said it's there. That's what faith is. I don't need to see to believe as the world would tell us. Instead, I believe because of my faith. A healing takes place in this passage, Joe, and I, and I know that we're emphasizing more the setup and the reception and the responsibility of it and everything, but a healing does take place. Jesus does say to this man, go, he's going to be okay. But he qualifies it. He says, before I say the words that you're waiting to hear, I want you to know that unless you guys see me do what I'm about to do, you just don't want to believe in me. Unless you see me change the water to wine, you won't believe in me. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is a condemnation on the weakness of our faith. So keep that in mind. It's one of the biggest things I wrestle with when so many people are seeking signs and wonders today is I don't see a lot of positive emphasis on why we need it so much in the scriptures. I see Jesus emphasizing more than anything. Have I not said it? Why do you not trust it? So Jesus is saying, unless you see these things, you're not going to believe me. It's not necessarily a rebuke of the request. Is it wrong for him to want his child healed? He's the life giver. He's come to give life. It's a great thing to ask for. And it's not that he's saying, I'm not going to do it because you don't have enough faith. He's saying, oh, I'm about to do it. I just want you to see what's going on here. It's like calling the crowd in and saying, look, guys, we have an opportunity here. We have a real need presenting itself. We have a, a situation that all of us are like, come on, help the kids, uh, the guy's son. You've got the ability. We know you do just do it. And he says, okay, before I get there, I just this is a learning opportunity. What, what are we going to do? Is this what we're going to need all the time going forward? Are, are you going to desire the gift over the giver forever? Or are we going to be able to move past this? What, what if he doesn't live? Does that somehow condemn me? You see, Jesus is, is there to introduce himself, the son of God, as the savior of the world, not just the one who's fixing all the problems. But he does say, go, your son will live. 
did, did any of you pick up on the fact that it's a little bit weird that he heals from a distance this time, even though we know in the scriptures he doesn't always heal from a distance? If there's a leper who nobody would touch, he touches. If there's a woman with blood who ceremonially is unclean and this woman that had blood of a continuing issue was never going to be clean in society and he allows her to touch him. Or if they're blind, he puts his hands in the ground and then he rubs them on on their eyes and they can see. Why does he touch sometimes and not this time? We don't know. But I do know that Jesus seems to always give us more than what we're asking for in the moment that we're asking. We think we need this. And he's saying to the leper, you don't just need the skin disease to go away. You need me to touch you. You need me to welcome you back into everything that you've been separated from. Or you don't just need your your eyesight. You need to feel the fact that I'm not distanced from you because you've got something that people can't understand or the woman with blood or any any of those kinds of things. That, that touch is an incredibly important part to Jesus' healing ministry because he knows what we need more than just fixing our issue. That should encourage our trust in him. Why is he doing what he's doing in my life right now? I don't know, but perhaps it's because he's giving you more than what you think you need. Secondly, I would say that mature faith grows in the water of obedience. We continue in verse 50. We saw that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and did what? And he left. He went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. I love this. He's like, I believe I left. I went, but just confirm for me. When did this all happen? I just got to make sure I can so relate to this. They said to him, well, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. I want you to just park that phrase for a second. Yesterday at the seventh hour. The father knew that he, that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household, just like the Samaritan woman, one person's transformation in faith led to others believing as well. Has that happened in your life? Have you been converted? As we say, have you been rescued from your sin? And then you've seen it starting to permeate with some of your friends and family. And they're like, what's going on here? That does happen. You know, don't stop believing that. Oh man, I just had a journey hits song pop in my head. I'm so sorry. Now everyone, and I can't just shut up about it. So, okay. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The seventh hour, most people would say is around one o'clock in the afternoon. This man was about 20 miles away to see Jesus. Jesus says, go, your son will live. He believed Jesus enough to go. He's probably on horseback. Like I said, he's got resources. He's got mode of travel. He can get back home that night. And wouldn't you, if you've heard that your son's going to make it, you just want to go and deliver the good news or you want to just go and hold him and hug him. You want to hurry up and get back there. And what do they say to him? Well, it happened yesterday. He wasn't there yesterday, was he? He took a day to get home. Is it possible that this man who demonstrated the same relatable weak faith that we all demonstrate in our panic grew up in an instant where Jesus, because of his words spoken to him, said, go, your son will be okay. And that guy just kind of went, you know what? That's all I needed. That's enough. And for some strange reason, I believe him. He's going to be all right. 
we're going to have plenty of time for baseball and doing the homework together and all that sort of stuff. I'm getting an Airbnb tonight. I'm getting a steak on the way home. I'll head out decent time in the morning. We'll be like a family and celebrating all of this. I mean, is it possible? The text doesn't tell us. Is it possible that this man took Jesus so much at his word that his behavior was completely altered? I don't have to race back and see. What would we do, right? If we'd be like, okay, uh, Jesus, you need to come down and you need to be with my son. And he said, oh, go, your son will live. And we would send the text and be like, okay, uh, he just said that Tommy's going to be okay. Confirm. Hold it a second. Yeah, see the little dots going here? They're getting back to me. Uh, we're, we're good. He made it. Sorry to bother you. Thank you for your time. You're so kind to me. Blessings, be on your way. Go back to the water and wine thing. I'll just get out of here now. It, that's the kind of faith we would have, right? I need confirmation. I need to know this great leap of faith that you're calling me to make, Lord. There's a payoff at the end. This guy kind of grows up quick and says, it's enough for me. I, I won't get the confirmation. I'm just going to head home. I'm going to take my time. Jesus said he's going to be okay. Imagine the dilemma of faith that's going on with him. He's saying, if I demand, if Jesus says, go, your son will live. And he goes, that's not really enough for me. If I demand that he comes to my house. It will show I don't really have any faith in him. Hey, thanks. Nice try. But I'm telling you, if you just come with me, I'll pay for your trip. I'll put you up. I'll feed you all that sort of stuff. I can't go back empty handed because if I go back empty handed without him, I have no assurance that my son will live. This guy is really stuck if he, if he lets it get into his head. If he doesn't simply just trust what Jesus says, he's between a rock and a hard place. But he does trust it. He does go because weak faith demands a guarantee, but strong faith acts before there's an assurance of a good outcome. I like how Tenney says this about this man. He says, this, learn, this man learned faith by the compulsion of the necessity. We, you and I have this necessity in our lives. We run to Jesus and we say, I'm asking you to do something. And if we're being honest, we don't necessarily step back and go, how much of this am I really thinking he's the only one? It's sometimes it's like he's the last resort. And so out of panic, I run to him. He, I, and we might learn faith by the compulsion of necessity. But because a strong faith acts before the assurance of a good outcome, we have to look at it differently. Again, we'll jump up towards uh, to John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's usins. We haven't seen him, have we? For 2,000 years, we've heard that he's real. We heard that he rose again. We have a, a book that we continue to learn from every day. We haven't seen him. And Jesus is saying, you've seen me because I'm right in front of your eyes. You see, so you believe. Blessed, more blessed will those be who believe in me even though they haven't seen. I go back to Merrill Tenney again. He says, Jesus desired a belief characterized by dedication rather than amazement. We're so amazed at times with the bigness of God and so much of our worship expression is about how cool the things that God does really are. It's really amazing. Our God sightings are, he did this thing that blew my mind and that's all good. When he does those things, it's all for his glory. We should promote it. 
We should lift it high. But what if he doesn't? What if he goes silent like he did for 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What if he's no longer doing new works? What if he's no longer doing fresh this or that? Is he still enough with all that he is and with all that he's already done? Is he still worthy of being obeyed? But our worship is best expressed by obedience rather than just simply thinking God's cool or amazing. It's good that we think he is. We should brag about him. But he's good whether he shows off, whether he does the thing that we feel like we need, whether he makes the sun come alive or not, he's still the great God. So here are some questions as we wrap this up. Are you allowing the word of Christ into your heart so that he can grow your faith? It's like every preacher in the world always says, are you reading your Bible? But that's the reality of this. Are you allowing his words to seep into your heart so that it can start spurring on this growth of faith? Are you in the audience of his message? Lord, you know, it's like you can come to receive or you can come to be or you can come to impress or whatever. But are you coming to receive? Lord, you have something for me in your word. What's it going to be? And then the follow-up question is, how frequently do you act on what you hear from him? Are they your grace-filled marching orders? And are you starting to recognize the incredible freedom that would be in your life if your faith was stronger than your circumstances, if all the panic of the worry turned into daily concern, what do I do about it today? And trust the Lord for the outcomes and the futures and the what if, the what ifs and whatevers. Are you starting to recognize what incredible freedom will come in your life when you start giving that over to him? The hallmark of strong Christianity is when we grow from a faith that requires confirmation to a faith that acts on the word of Christ. And this is where you and I start to live and walk in peace despite a promise of good outcomes on this earth. This is the faith that we are being compelled and being led by the grace of God to grow into. And it's our privilege to be able to exercise it. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer and have our worship team lead us out with song. God, I want to thank you, Father, for your word. And I thank you that so many centuries later, Lord, that we still glean such life from it, not just wisdom and and tips for life, but actual life that you breathe through the pages of your word into our very souls. Help us to always hear your words. Help us to always welcome your voice in our life, Lord, and then give us the faith, the, the replacement of our weak faith. Give us a stronger faith that just simply acts on what you've told us to do, what you've told us you will do, what you have done, that we start to walk in obedience because of it. Thank you, Lord. For this great church, thank you for these amazing people. Thank you for the smiles on their faces. Thank you for the joy that is in their spirit and in their heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them an incredible week full of your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.